Welcome back to Trennis Magnus, Jab's Reality, a podcast vacation presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and as I think a lot of you have probably already discovered for yourselves if you've listened to my show for, I would say, really at all over the past several months, is my main show, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, is on hiatus right now, and the reason for that is because I'm going to be getting married soon, and I've been releasing new episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at least once a week. There was a point when I was actually releasing, it didn't last very long, but I did release multiple episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality in in, uh, a single week early on in the show's run, but that's not really the point. The point is, you know, I I was releasing new episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Guys, I'm not kidding. Every single week, at least once every single week, nonstop, from August of 2013, going right on through to about... Uh, when did my hiatus start? Like September or October of 2018? something like that. It doesn't really matter. The point is, it was five years, non-stop, in the middle of natural disasters, in the middle of moving, and all these other things that sometimes life just throws your way. Never once did I ever miss a week. And that's something that I'm actually kind of proud of, you know, that the for over five years, I was able to maintain a consistent and predictable release schedule for this show. I gave you guys my word that nothing would ever stand in my way, and I never did let anything stand in my way. And I didn't want to have to live with the expectation or the deadline or whatever of a weekly release schedule or, you know... Those things have got to just keep coming out, man, every single week. And so what I've been doing, excuse me, I don't know what happens with my throat when I start talking like this. But anyway, the uh, what I've been doing is releasing the odd episode of Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality periodically. You know, just as the mood strikes me, that's what I've been doing. And the thing that I like about Trennis Magnus Jab's reality is that just by virtue of what it is, I can get away with having less structure, or I can talk about subjects that are maybe a little bit off the beaten path, or just whatever. So there is a sense in which what I'm doing right now is actually kind of not what Trennis Magnus Jab's reality is supposed to be about, but hey, fuck it, whatever. This is uh, the hand I've been dealt, so I'm playing it. Anyway, that's all just background stuff though the the thing that I wanted to talk about today is over the course of the last like several days maybe a week at this point but several days for sure I've had an I've had occasion to reevaluate the the Hobbit movies the Hobbit trilogy Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy right and the where that started was 
I basically bought the uh, the Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey uh, soundtrack off of iTunes, and I was listening to it, and I was just kind of struck once again by how much I just love Howard scores uh, Howard Shore's scores. <laughs> Howard score. Ah, eh, fuck it, I'm leaving it. In. Howard Shore's uh, scores for these movies that. Even if the movie itself isn't necessarily so wonderful, well, at least the at least the music sounds great. So that was certainly a consideration. But when I when I started thinking about it, you know, it's like, what is it about these movies that's really so wrong? You know, because the objection, and I and I think I'm on the record saying this, or at least I, I think I am. I may not be, but I, I honestly don't know if I'm on the record for saying this, but just in case I'm not, what I'll say is what I what I always believed about the Hobbit trilogy was that it's those movies are just missing something, you know? And damned if I can completely articulate like what it is but there's something in those movies that the Lord of the Rings trilogy has in abundance that simply do not exist in the Hobbit trilogy, right? I just, I don't get it. So, I don't know. So, I started thinking about it. It's like, well, there's nothing wrong with the cast. I love the cast of, uh, of the Hobbit films, you know? I pretty much wouldn't change a thing. I'm, you know, I guess nothing is ever perfect, but I guess considering the fact that Peter Jackson had to work with actors and cast members who were alive and available uh, to work and be cast in his movie at the time that he started this process. Like, when was it? Like, 2010? Like, 2009 or 2010 or something? I don't know. So, it was around there, is the point. That kind of limits you, you know? But I'm, I'm just saying that for what he had to work with at the time, I really don't have any specific criticism of the cast of the Hobbit films. I I think they're great, you know? So, so there's that. It's trading text messages, and this is ages and ages and ages ago, but I was trading uh, text messages with Dave Atterbury, like I say, ages, like a year ago or something like that, I think, and he was talking about the, just the, the art design of the Hobbit movies and how there's nothing wrong with Lord of the Rings. He likes, he, he was clear about this. You know, he, he enjoys Lord of the Rings. Those are extremely well done, but there's something about the art design in the Hobbit trilogy that just is, it, it just tickles his imagination, I guess. I don't understand. I, I, I don't know if I'm doing such a great job of articulating somebody else's point of view here. But when Dave Atterbury and I were trading these messages, that was basically the general sense that I had, that he was just in love with the art design. And when I started thinking about it, I was like, you know what? Dave's onto something there. I mean, the, the, the design, you know, the production design and all of the different, you know, costumes and the wardrobes, uh, the props and the sets and all that fun stuff. You know, that stuff is frickin' top shelf, you know? Again, I cannot say a single critical word about any of that stuff. I think it's great. So, there's that going for it as well. And I just somewhat touched on Howard Shore, but I do think it's worth kind of maybe fully developing that a little bit more and saying that 
the themes that Howard Shore developed specifically for the, the Hobbit trilogy, and then the themes from Lord of the Rings that he revisited, I mean, that stuff is just incredibly well done. Uh, you know, even by lofty Howard Shore standards, I still can't see a single problem. Well, what I listened to was an, the Unexpected Journey film score, so we'll just talk about that, you know. Couldn't hear a single problem with it, you know. It's all top quality, you know. I, I walked in expecting greatness, and Howard Shore said, no, greatness isn't good enough. I'm going to give you greatness plus a little bit more greatness to go with it. It's just freaking incredible work. I love it. Wouldn't change a thing. On and on and on. And... So what is it about these movies that just kind of bothered me? And so I guess the way that I kind of sort of rationalized it to myself was that basically Jackson, maybe he strayed a little too far away from Tolkien's original work. You know, the Hobbit novel, which has been forever since I've read, but he strayed maybe a little bit too far away from that and he might have done better to to keep the thing focused you know and to be fair i do think that there's there's some validity to that criticism okay if that's the fatal flaw that you see in the hobbit trilogy then what am i supposed to do tell you you're wrong because i I can't really do that, but it, it's it's just one of those things that, you know what, the more I started thinking about this, the more I realized I don't know if that's such a valid criticism anymore either, all right? It's well and good, I think, to want a, a little bit more clearer narrative focus on Bilbo Baggins and, you know, his his... Uh, his arc in in the story, you know, his journey, his travels, his adventures, his successes, his failures, all of that. It's well and good to want that, you know, and I'm certainly not going to criticize anybody if that's where you're coming from. But there is an ensemble quality to, uh, the, to the Hobbit as a story. But there's something else, too. There's also the Hobbit's place in Tolkien's Legendarium. And this, I don't think we can overlook. Now, like I say, you can disagree with Peter Jackson's creative decision to kind of broaden the canvas a little bit of The Hobbit and what it's supposed to be about. But at the end of the day, the... And, and guys, again, it's been forever since I've read uh, The Hobbit, the book, so forgive me if I'm forgetting something here. But at the end of the day, the only thing that really stands out to me as a complete fabrication, something that Jackson invented entirely out of whole cloth and which has no precedent whatsoever in any of Tolkien's writings, is Toriel. And that's just about it. Everything else... You can agree or disagree with Jackson's interpretation of it, but you cannot ignore that these things have some kind of antecedent in Tolkien's writing. And 
if I had to put a label on this, what I would say is what Jackson was trying to do with the Hobbit trilogy is do not so much, obviously, not so much a page-by-page adaptation of The Hobbit, so much as he wanted to do a little bit more of a holistic adaptation of The Hobbit. So, yes, there's The Hobbit book itself, which is, you know, obviously that's, that's the backbone of the movie, and I don't think anyone is really arguing to the contrary on that. But the other thing is the appendices from the Lord of the Rings novel, which, let's face it, it does have ramifications on on The Hobbit as a story. It basically deepens the context in which the story of The Hobbit takes place, right? And of course, I'm speaking of Appendix A. This is Section 3, entitled Durin's Folk. And there's basically a lot of things in there there's a lot of background information that it basically increase it, it it makes more specific i suppose the context in which the hobbit as a story takes place you know and even uh, there are even sections in here about about thorin himself and the things that are on his mind and to be honest with you yes this is an appendix and it's relatively brief but I'm pretty sure that I don't want to read the this section of the appendix in its entirety I mean like number one I'm not even sure how legal that is notwithstanding the fact that I am commenting on this and so there's a degree to which maybe that's fair use or something I don't know it's not a risk that I personally want to take but you know so I'm not really sure how how legal that would be but the other thing is it's Honestly, it's just, it's really not necessary, you know? Basically, what I kind of want to emphasize here is basically the section that concerns itself, I don't want to say primarily with Azog, but there's a lot of Azog material in this this particular uh, appendix, uh, Durin's Folk. There's a fair bit about... Uh, Azog, and what I think is going on here is that Peter Jackson read this stuff about Azog, and he said, okay, well, I mean, this fits, I guess, within the general framework of The Hobbit, and so this is material that I can use, and basically, not so much pad out the runtime, although I do think there's some validity to that accusation that Jackson was doing a little bit of filibustering in order to to extend each movie out as long as it possibly could be, and I don't know. So, but at the same time, I mean, this is valid material to be adapted into a live-action Hobbit trilogy. You know, if that's your intention, knowing that you have to make three movies, well, this specific appendix in general... And I would say this element of the appendix in particular, you know, goings on with Azog, you know, the battles that were fought, that is very fertile ground, I think, uh, to work from, you know. As for me, the the part that I really wanted to focus on here, let's see, yes, here it is. I don't know how it's going to work out for anybody else, but this... 
uh, begins on page uh, 1077 in uh, my copy of The Lord of the Rings. So if you've got the same copy, then, well, I guess we can read this together. But like I say, I'm not going to read the entire thing. Number one, like I say, I don't know how legal it is for me to do that. And number two, whether it's legal or whether it's not, it's almost like it doesn't matter. It would be kind of boring to sit here listening to me reading out of a book. But I do at least want to touch upon this one little section right here where it says, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, the, uh, the book says, The years lengthened. The embers in the heart of Thorin grew hot again as he brooded on the wrongs of his house and the vengeance upon the dragon that he had inherited. He thought of weapons and armies and alliances as his great hammer rang in the forge. But the armies were dispersed and the alliances broken and the axes of his people were few and a great anger without hope burned him as he smote the red iron on the anvil. But at last there came about by chance a meeting between Gandalf and Thorin that changed all the fortunes of the House of Durin and led to other and greater ends beside. On a time, Thorin, returning from a journey, stayed at Bree for the night. <clears throat> there Gandalf was also. He was on his way to the Shire, which he had not visited for some twenty years. He was weary and thought to rest there for a while. Among many cares, he was troubled in mind by the perilous state of the north, because he knew then already that Sauron was, plant, was plotting war, and intended, as soon as he felt strong enough, to attack Rivendell. But to assist any attempt from the east to regain the lands of Angmar, and the northern passes in the mountains, there were now only the dwarves of the Iron Hills, and beyond them lay the desolation of the dragon. The dragon Sauron might use with terrible effect. How then could the end of Smaug be achieved? It was even as Gandalf sat and pondered this that Thorin stood before him and said, Master Gandalf, I know you only by sight, but now I should be glad to speak with you, for you have come often, or sorry, you for you have often come into my <clears throat> into my thoughts of late, as if I were bidden to seek you. Indeed, I should have done so if I had known where to find you. Gandalf looked at him with wonder. That is strange, Thorin Oakenshield, he said, for I have thought of you also. And though I am on my way to the Shire, it was in my mind that that is the, also, that is the way also to your halls. Call them so, if you will, said Thorin. They are only poor lodgings in exile, but... You would be welcome there if you would come, for they say that you are wise and know more than any other of what goes on in the world, and I have much on my mind and would be glad of your counsel. I will come, said Gandalf, for I guess that we share one trouble at least. The dragon of Erebor is on my mind, and I do not think that he will be forgotten by the grandson of Thror. I'm going to put this on hold here and say... Basically, what, what's going on here is there is a metric fuckton of stuff going on in the Hobbit movies involving Gandalf and, I guess, 
basically a broader action that the White Council is taking against Sauron. And what we're basically getting here is Gandalf's perspective on why it is that he would help uh, Thorin and the other dwarves reclaim Erebor. I mean, yeah, it's a good thing. It's an honorable thing. It's a noble thing for Gandalf to do in one sense. But in another sense, it w I think it's safe to say that Gandalf... His his motives here are not completely altruistic. I mean, yes, he does want to help the dwarves, all right? And that's great. But there's a bigger objective that's going on here. Specifically, a war that Gandalf suspects is going to erupt between the free peoples of Middle-earth and Sauron. And indeed, that's more or less what ended up happening in Lord of the Rings. But what this section does right here is it basically kind of lays out a few kernels of what's going on in Gandalf's mind at the time that he and Thorin had their, ha had their meeting together in Bree. And so right there, I think Peter Jackson would have, would have read this and instantly understood that, you know, here's a chance to kind of broaden the canvas of The Hobbit as a story in a way that The Hobbit, the book itself, wouldn't necessarily allow if we just start on the first page of The Hobbit and end on the final page of The Hobbit, and then that's that. So, anyway. Um, the appendix kind of goes on at length from, from there, but... One of the things that I do kind of want to just sort of emphasize here is that Gandalf's issue with reclaiming Erebor, specifically what he wants to do is remove a would-be major ally for for Sauron to use in any war against the people of Middle-earth. He basically has to do something to make sure that Smaug gets killed because he's just too powerful to risk letting him develop any kind of an alliance with Sauron, right? If Sauron forges some kind of a friendship or alliance with Smaug, he could be, Sauron, might be completely unstoppable. There may be no way for the people of Middle-earth to win, whereas at least if Smog is dead, well, there's a chance. And so what this, what the appendix uh, goes on to say is, in the late summer of that same year, which is to say 2941, Gandalf had at, had at last prevailed upon Saruman and the White Council to attack Dol Guldur. And Sauron retreated and went to Mordor, there to be secure, as he thought, from all his enemies. So it was that when the war came at last, the main assault was turned southwards. Yet even so, with his far-stretched right hand, Sauron might have done great evil in the north if King Dane, I guess is how you pronounce this name, D-A-I, well, it's, it's an A that has the little squiggle mark above it, so I don't know, Dane, D-A-I-N. If King Dane and King Brand had not stood in his path, 
Even as Gandalf set out afterwards to Frodo and Gimli when they dwelt together for a time in Minas Tirith, not long before news had come to Gondor of events far away. And it just, it, it like I say, it just it goes on from there. But here again, I can see where Peter Jackson would read this, specifically the bit of business with the White Council, the attack on Dol Guldur, and think, okay, well, here's a little bit something more that I can bring to the table that I can use for the movie. Again, not necessarily to, to artificially pad out the movie's runtime, so much as develop the story of The Hobbit and adapt it, again, as kind of a holistic sort of presentation as opposed to just sticking to what's on the page and not going to the left or to the right with it. So, uh, the th this section of the appendix, it, it just kind of moves on. It talks about some other things. You know, Gimli come, uh, it, it gets mentioned, Legolas gets mentioned, Galadriel, so on and so forth, Rivendell. But that's really the 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 main thing that I that I wanted to discuss here is I was aware of the fact that this stuff came from the Lord of the Rings Appendix A and like I say I mean the main objection that I always had to the Hobbit trilogy was it, it basically came off like there's I don't want to say that like, again, I don't want to say that, that Jackson was basically throwing a bunch of shit against the wall to make three, three-ish hour movies. Because to me, I mean, it, I, I think that's just selling the guy short. But what I would have wanted is something that focuses a little bit more closely on Bilbo as a character as opposed to all these other things that in my opinion, have the practical effect of turning The Hobbit into a prequel to Lord of the Rings rather than adapting The Hobbit as kind of like a freewheeling adventure story, you know? And the simple fact of the matter is that Peter Jackson is the director of those movies, not me. He's the one that has to take responsibility for them. He's the one that gets to make the creative decisions behind it. And the truth is, just because the movies aren't necessarily what I might have wanted, is that really, does that really justify calling them bad? Well, you know what? The more I think about it, the more I think, you know what? I don't think it does because, like I say, there's nothing wrong with the music, Howard Shore's work in these movies. There's nothing wrong with the cast of these movies. As Dave Atterbury pointed out to me, or at least reminded me, there's certainly nothing wrong with the art direction of, of these movies. And so what does that leave? The narrative? Well, like I say, I mean, Jackson is at liberty to adapt the movies however he sees fit. And the fact of the matter is that he chose to adapt this story and with a little bit more of a broader view as opposed to I, I guess the little bit more of the laser-like focus that the novel has on Bilbo and so I guess you can agree with that decision or you can disagree with it but you cannot say that there's no validity 
in that approach to this material. And so, again, I honestly don't know if I ever came right out and said so before, but that was basically the way that I looked at it. But another thing to keep in mind, and I'm one of those people who kind of believes that whatever bullshit is happening behind the scenes on a movie really shouldn't factor into my evaluation of it. The movie is either good or it's not good. I don't really care what your fucking sob story is about why such and such didn't turn out to be better. Is the movie good or is the movie not good? That's what matters. Having said that, we're... I almost want to say that I'm not doing my job if I don't mention the fact that Peter Jackson walked into filming on Lord of the Rings with something like a full year or almost a full year of pre-production, of planning, of uh, developing scripts, planning out shots, creating animatics, and doing all these other things. He was able to move through principal photography on Lord of the Rings. I would say probably very efficiently because he had a very good idea of what he needed to achieve in every single shot that that he made. And that's, I mean, obviously not everything that he shot got used in the movies. I mean, even in the extended editions of the movies, rumor has it there's still shit tons of deleted scenes that have never, and I guess will never, see the light of day. You know, but on a general basis, he understood what it was that he needed to do with every single camera angle, every single setup, every single shot, every single everything. And that's an advantage that, for better or for worse, he did not have going into the Hobbit trilogy, where he only had something like three, maybe four months of pre-production in order to uh, get ready to shoot the Hobbit. And then he had to start shooting the Hobbit and then... That was it. And again, I mean, I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm making excuses or anything like that. You know, we all make decisions in life and, and, and at times, you know, sometimes we all get, we get dealt a bad hand. You know, sometimes life isn't fair, you know, and it doesn't seem like life was especially fair to Peter Jackson when he was making these Hobbit films. But the, the fact remains that there are some things in this, you know, in these movies that could have been done better. But having said all of that, I guess what I want to emphasize here is the the movies are really they're a lot better than I've given them credit for. Now, again, no, these are not this this is not the Hobbit as I the way I would have wanted to see it adapted into uh, uh, into film but this is a valid way to adapt The Hobbit into film and the fact is everyone did the very best they could with the circumstances that they were forced to work work within you know with these films and Jackson's creative preference appears to be a very broad-based adaptation of The Hobbit. And when you think about it in those terms, it's kind of hard for me to criticize too much of anything with The Hobbit trilogy. Now, 
I guess some people might consider this to be hypocritical, but I do think I've mentioned in the past that my preferred way of watching The Hobbit is the Maple Films fan edit, which basically takes the extended editions of all three Hobbit films, cuts them down into one four-hour mega movie, and then also throws in that that kind of, we could call it the appendix material, you know, the investigation of Dol Guldur, Durin's folk, the, uh, the, the battle between the White Council and the forces of Sauron and all that in a Dol Guldur. And it basically sets all that stuff to the side as kind of its own sort of mini-movie. It's like just over an hour long or something like that. You know, there's goings-on with Bjorn, there's goings-on with Dol Guldur, there's goings-on with Radagast and all that. And it's kind of a, a separate little tangent. And I really do like that Hobbit fan edit and the the uh, that little side movie I just mentioned. That's called uh, Durance Folk and the Hill of Sorcery. And I kind of like that, you know? That, that to me is good business. And so I think that's probably the cut that I'm, you know, the cut of the Hobbit movies that I'm going to stick with. But at least, well, I guess maybe the best way to put it is at least I've got a little bit more of an appreciation now of what Jackson was trying to do in more deeply entwining the Hobbit trilogy with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and bringing more of Middle Earth to the big screen. Because guys, at the end of the day, is more Middle Earth in live-action cinema, is that ever possibly a bad thing when Peter Jackson is the director? And my answer to that is no. No, it isn't. So, anyway, this this whole thing has actually gone on a lot longer than I wanted it to, so I probably better pull the plug right here. But what I do want to say, just to kind of tease some things that are coming in, if I had to guess, I would say probably the very distant future. I don't want to turn Trinus Magnus Punch's reality into a book report. But there are some parts of Lord of the Rings as a novel that I am just, just in love with. I love these particular parts of it. And so I do want to have episodes where I talk about that stuff. And I mean like at perhaps unnecessary length, I talk about that stuff. And I, don't, and I don't mean like the totality of the novel. I mean specifically the parts of the novel that I really love and really stood out to me and I just can't get enough of, you know? If anything, I wish that those parts could have been longer or whatever. And so uh, I, do, I do intend when my hiatus is over, having some episodes of Trinus Magnus Punch's reality that are kind of like a prolonged sort of Lord of the Rings book report, but that's coming in the future. I honestly couldn't tell you when, but it's it's coming it's coming at some point in the future. Another thing that I've been asked about, and this actually uh, comes from uh, Doug Meacham, he asked about this on the Facebook group. When am I going to subject the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy to the same level of analysis and commentary that I subjected 
in particular, what I remember Doug saying was uh, the same level of de uh, depth and commentary that I subjected the Chris Nolan Batman films to with uh, Professor Allen. And the answer to that is I'm not completely sure that I ever will. The promise that I made to Doug, and which I guess now I'm making to all of you guys, is the next time I do a Lord of the Rings trilogy rewatch, which I do on an annual basis, but the next time I do a Lord of the Rings trilogy rewatch, what I plan to do is just make some notes as I go along and just try to gather my thoughts a little bit about these movies, and we'll see where we're at then, you know? The fact is, though, it's kind of hard to to speak at any great length about the Lord of the Rings films just because, guys, people have talked about those movies so much, and it's like, what could I possibly say about those movies that you guys haven't already heard before? And the answer to that may very well be not very much, you know? There may be a lot of things that are on my mind that are just frankly not very original, you know? So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So again, I'm not promising to anybody that I will do it, by which I mean make a make uh, some episodes about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, like movie trilogy. But what I will do, and this is a promise I am making, is that when I do this year's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy rewatch, like I say, what I'm going to do is watch these movies with an eye on maybe someday doing episodes of some kind about these movies and gathering my notes and just seeing if I have something to say about these films that's actually worth listening to. And again, the answer to that may very well be no, I don't. But that's not necessarily written in stone, now is it? So anyway, all in all, I guess you guys, if you like listening to me talk about Lord of the Rings or Tolkien or The Hobbit or any of that, uh, I guess you guys, maybe you could consider this something to look forward to. But either way, I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So bye, everybody. I will see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. 
So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.
Better than rain or rippling rope. Is a mongo beer inside this tote? Hey! 